anyone you know is interested, please send us an email to programacion-espanol at pacifica.org or visit your local Pacifica radio website. Pacifica speaks Spanish. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is May the 3rd, uh, 2016. That's what it is, 2016. <laughs> I've got too much, too much to deal with today. I'm beginning to sink under the weight, the woes. My opening theme, uh, it's from the Three Penny Opera, Kurt Weil and Berthold Brecht. I've been reading a biography of Berthold Brecht. Seems he was a pretty terrible man. Uh, and the women did 80% of the writing, but I'll get around to Brecht some other time. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the Germany, uh, the Weimar Republic, the Germany between the wars. Uh, I don't know why it hit me. Uh, I think it's looking at all this insanity um, on the TV, you know, <laughs> the Donald Trump. He's having a wonderful time. Oh, boy, he's just... He's hiring a kite, uh, reverting to his juvenile, you know, middle school playground behavior, humiliating our nation. How can the world have any respect for the United States when we have no respect for ourselves? Now, if the dark birds of history are really hovering over this, uh, this scene, let's just call it a scene. <clears throat> We've got six months more of this, you know. Uh, maybe we should uh, just review, just take a little look. Uh, Germany between the world wars, it was called the Weimar Republic, and it was full of women, 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 women. Yes, there was a, almost, uh, almost a legitimate democracy. Uh, over here, we had 2% of our elected officials were women. Over there, it was 20%. You know, after World War One, they just got liberal, liberal as hell. 
And then came the backlash. The backlash against women. It's the women. It rose so violently. Uh, just threw the women out of government, out of everything. Teaching, jobs, you name it. <clears throat> now, this liberal period, I think it just terrified the you call it the old guard, the powers that be. They were at that time called the Freikor. Uh They were the warrior class left over from World War One, <clears throat> And uh, they were the men who'd been stiffed, you know. Uh, we see some of that, that uh, psychology going on now. These men who feel that they have been uh, not castrated exactly, but let's just say... They feel like somebody has stolen uh, what their lunch. Anyway, that little period of true democracy, that moment of glory, uh, uh, was all too brief. Um, yes, 2%, 2% of our elected officials. Now, today in this country, we got 20% women. Mm. Who was it who said Amy Goodman the other night on uh, uh, the Bill Maher show? She said that, uh, just think, if we had 50% of the women, 50% of the senators were women, just think then, what would happen? Anyway, all the feminist and liberal stuff uh, just just went, went under. Uh, they decided they would shoot. You remember Red Rosa, the the uh, heroic revolutionary Rosa Luxemburg. She died a right-wing bullet uh, to the head. <clears throat> now, some people say that it can't happen here. <laughs> Look and listen. There's a documentary on PBS that I recommend most highly. See if you can, uh, well... Show it, say, to your students, high school students. The title is My Nazi Legacy, What Our Fathers Did. I will repeat, it's on PBS. It's a documentary, hour and a half. It's called My Nazi Legacy, What Our Fathers Did. Now, this documentary does a lot more than just wring its hands over the Holocaust. Uh, that's a given, you know. Uh, uh, we all are familiar with that stuff. The writer of this documentary, Philip Sands, what he does is he juxtaposes the words and the thoughts and the feelings of two men. They're both about my age, well, a little younger, yeah, a little younger, uh, in their 70s somewhere. Uh they, of course, are the children of uh, the Nazis. Their fathers were big, big famous Nazis. One a little more famous than the other, you know, but they had uh, command decisions. That is to say, they could sign the papers when people died. Uh, one of these men manages to find ways to excuse his father's crimes. Not exactly excuse, but understand, you know? Now, both these fathers, as I said, were major war criminals. Uh, one of them was hung 
Yes. Command responsibility, they called it. Uh, they sent millions of human beings to their deaths. Now, the second man uh, is completely cognizant of his father's role in Germany's war crimes. And he says, yes, it can happen again, that this will to destroy is still alive and it is in his countrymen today. Now, uh, he is thoroughly convinced that his father was a monster. Uh, yes, he, he tries, you see, he tries to be a friend or I think he called him brother, he tries to talk to this man the other man, the one who loved his father and makes excuses for him. Now, the funny thing here is that the German who had a happy childhood, who had a loving family, and who now refuses to admit his father's guilt, well, he accepts the facts, but he, he talks about history, talks about uh, abstract and all those who have died in wars over time. He scapegoats the Soviet. Um, it's a 1946 document signed by his father. He dismisses that, saying that uh, the Soviets um, uh, stepped in after the war and it was their, <coughs> their doing anyway. He found so many mitigating factors and the final excuse he uses when the documentarian and uh, the other the other German kind of pushes him to the wall he he says that it was his father's fear his father had a family and if his father had said no to Hitler he would have been executed yeah well same old same old just followed orders and so on uh now, here is the dilemma I find in this. Uh, I'm always saying, you know, you got to tenderize these children so they'll grow up to be, uh, you know, gentle and nonviolent. Uh-huh. Uh, I think in this case we're talking about the system. Uh, maybe it's about male bonding, you know, being trapped. Uh, oh, you have to do what the other boys do. Now, the man who sees, who understands the Holocaust, who recognizes it for exactly what it was. Now, he is the German who had the unkind father, the awful childhood, uh, his parents fighting, divorce, all this. Uh, now, the question arises in his case, uh, does he blame his father? They ask him, yes, does he... Uh, feel that his, uh, his feelings for his father color his feelings for the Nazi regime. Uh, his father being a harsh parent, uh, he doesn't hesitate to condemn his father absolutely. Now the man who excuses his dad, or tries to, who sees his father as caught up in the times as a victim of circumstance... Maybe it's his need to see his father as only a man forced to do wrong. But at the same time, of course, he is a decent man, a loving family man, husband, and so forth and so forth. We know these wonderful stories about the guy who uh, can torture and murder before breakfast and then 
go home and have a loving, loving time with his children, his family. Uh, now, this is the best documentary on the subject uh, I have seen. I think this is amazing. It it really gets into the the psychology. These sons of fascist fathers. I have a stack of books. Uh, let's see, Barbara Ehrenreich. Uh, oh, there's a book, two books by Klaus Thewelite called Male Fantasies. Amazing books. Um, Klaus Thewelite was born 1946. He writes so much about <clears throat> the fantasy life of the uh, German fascists. Uh, Anyway, these guys are trying to come to terms with their German heritage. And I found this show fascinating. Once again, it's called uh, Nazi Legacy, My Nazi Legacy, What Our Fathers Did. It's on PBS, and I'm sure you can get it on demand now. Uh, I guess the way human psychology works, well, it's coming, it's beginning to come to us a little better now. We're not quite as dumb as we used to be. Uh, or maybe, maybe I, maybe I uh, am optimistic. Uh, I guess we do understand that we need to believe certain things the facts are neither here nor there. I think of it all the time. What do I need to believe, you know, to go on living and to think well of myself? That's where we get this snag here, you know. The man uh, who cannot, who simply cannot believe that his father was a monster, uh, he just, he just, I don't know how to say, uh, they get so cranky and angry with him because, of course, he cannot, he simply cannot admit that uh, his father was the devil. Uh, uh, it is, it's fascinating, fascinating documentary. School children, the ones who saw Schindler's List, will recognize that the little girl in the red coat, uh, yeah, that was the thing that was kind of fascinating to me. Uh, remember in Schindler's List, there's this little girl. The sh whole movie was in black and white, and suddenly you see this little girl in the red coat. Uh, oh, too many things this week. I wanted to talk about uh, this virus, this Zeta virus. Uh, I have nightmares about that one now. Now, uh, it's another one of these problems uh what is it what is known has nothing to do with what is being done z-i-t-a uh, encephalopathy it's all over the net you just check it out uh, but the question is how do we use the knowledge how do we interpret this information the Congress, our Congress, has stalled on funding for research. Uh, you know, it's not their priority. Uh, you know, <laughs> President Obama has requested that the Congress 
cough up, um, what did he say, 1.3 billion or is it 1.7 billion? Anyway, uh, in the in the vast overview, it's not that much money. Anyway, Congress seems unable to act, unable to legislate, to govern, to do their job. Of course, uh, their number one, <laughs> their number one failure is <laughs> their their unwillingness to uh, vet this new uh, judge for the Supreme Court. I keep asking myself, where the hell is the Surgeon General, the health departments, you know, Center for Disease Control, all the educated medical professionals? Why is it that they are not on the mass media 24-7? I'm afraid this recalls the first years of the AIDS crisis, when the time Time is of the essence. Nobody is minding the store, boys and girls. Um, The state, the state is on its own. No priorities here. It's kind of like uh, maybe the late Middle Ages. We're depending on uh, corporate sponsors. Millionaires, millionaires, billionaires, billionaires. A handful of individuals have to come forward and uh give the money to those who need it but it's it's what is the word for that uh chaos that's what it is chaos the zeta virus is a catastrophe and it's multiplying every day it continues to be ignored the vaccine they say will take years mosquito abatement will be even more difficult and take even longer you know how difficult it is to get rid of mosquitoes, and there are so many other things, dengue fever and all that, you know. You just never quite can get these mosquitoes off the planet. <laughs> the virus <clears throat> is a stealth destroyer. You know, people have, have been uh, uh, bitten by the little mosquito, and uh, they carry the virus and don't know it. We have no idea how many have already been stricken. Uh, It's the old tip of the iceberg thing. Uh, Pregnant women are in a clear and present danger. There's new information that indicates this virus has many effects and not only, not only a threat to developing fetuses, it's a serious threat to the nervous systems of all of us. I don't know about the nervous system of uh, the non-human animals. I'm sure that will turn up. <laughs> Who's going to take care of these people? You know, these people, Donian, stricken by this virus. Uh, oh, the noble medical men, you know, doctors without borders. I kept thinking they would be on the front lines and they've been under attack from our own military forces. The uh, military forces seem to be doing more damage. Let's call it friendly fire. Yes, friendly fire. (laughs) Half an hour it took them to stop bombing uh, our own people. 
I remember being taught how sacred it was when you saw that big red cross that meant hospital, hospital. You mustn't, mustn't, mustn't hurt the medical folks. Uh, uh-huh. They're dodge, um, at least what we're hearing. They, they're giving the old excuses of miscommunication, you know. I don't know why they think they can get away with that, but, uh, they do. They do get away with it. Uh, they call it an accident. I just don't see how we can expect health workers to continue to do their jobs when all their efforts are likely simply to get them killed. I'm just unable to picture a future if we continue to support a system and the government that cannot or will not take care of business. This miserable media display of infantile pundits playing politics is unbearable. I have sworn I will not, I will not do wringing of the hands. Uh, <laughs> I just, I look at these uh, political pundits polluting the airwaves. Uh, shameful. Smearing the TV screens with their interminable bickering and, you know, the paralysis of analysis, all that kid stuff. Just numbers. My numbers beat your numbers. Now, this hysterical hype, uh, I, I don't see how it can continue. It's completely irrelevant, of course. Uh, it does matter that we keep a democratic administration, but, uh, <laughs> Ye gods and little fishes, what a waste of time and words and money. Uh, oh, some of us hoped, well, we always hope that these political battles will educate the public, will uh, present civics lessons, you know. Uh, actually, at this point, looks more like a civil war is about to erupt the uh, protesters and so forth, you know. These guys don't want to govern. They just want to fight. They want to put on the gloves. It goes right to the lower chakras, you know. They want to get in there and uh, uh, get that enemy bloody their opponent. So strange. Uh, I remember Robert McNamara when he finally got the picture that the Vietnam War was a tragic mistake. He said that... Uh, he discovered at some point that he was unable to process information without an enemy. That's it. It's called, you know, like the Marines. Who do, who do we attack? You know, simply couldn't get his mind around strategy, uh, tactics. Uh, I don't know. It is, it is a heartbreak. Uh, too much venting, Jennifer. Too much venting. I wanted to thank you guys for your kind letters. I'll be off the air, I think, the next three Tuesdays for Marathon. Uh, you can reach me with an email. You just send it via KPFA, kpfa.org, you know, and just write Jennifer Stone. I see that I have some very kind emails here. Uh, yep. And what do I have here? I have a goodie. Janice Joplin tonight. Janice Joplin. I got a little biography of Janice out of my bookcase. 
It's not a very good one. It's written and edited by David Dalton. He does his best, and it's got some nice pictures, but, you know, it's all that exposes the marrow of a tortured soul kind of talk, you know. Uh, I suppose, I suppose that's good enough. I think, uh, let's see, I think, yes, let me look right here to what she herself says. Now, this, this, uh, documentary on Janis Joplin airs tonight, tonight, Tuesday night, May the 3rd, 8 o'clock on PBS station. And it's about Janis Joplin born in January 1943, oldest of three children in Port Arthur, Texas. Uh, uh, her father was once employed by the Texas Canning Company, and so on and so forth. Uh, her mother, Dorothy, is the registrar at Port Arthur College, a business school. She goes on about her uh, sister, Laura, and her brother, Michael. Uh, <laughs> there's there's some funny stuff here. Uh, Janis Joplin says uh, that uh, hippies hippies don't go over hippies don't go over in Texas. That's about her as to her judgment on her background, her family. But uh, apparently, most of the people in her family seem to feel that uh, she was. You know, she, she was always, always part of the family. Um, her her uh, outrageousness may have upset them, but they never rejected her. Once again, Janis Joplin on American Masters tonight. Uh, oh, all this stuff in here about being an outsider in San Francisco and cocaine deals. She started out with painting and poetry and... There she was in San Francisco in the coffee house, singing Long Black Veil, and oh yes, uh, beatniks, early sixties, Bessie Smith. Now it seems to me that Janis Joplin needed some help. She needed some wise friends, a lot of support, some conscientious colleagues, uh, people who understood her and could work with her. She does seem to be kind of alone out there. Uh, hmm. There's a lot of stuff in here of, oh, news people asking her all these uh, rude questions. One of her pals in San Francisco, he says, well, she was funky and, uh, you know, uh, she was so weird that not too many people could empathize with her. Nobody understood her. It wasn't till later that she started getting into this, well, a more sexy dress bag and a more sexy approach. At that time, earlier, she was covered with sackcloth and screaming the blues. Here she's talking about, uh, yes, her Odetta imitation back in Port Arthur, and then she talks a little bit about Bessie Smith, her inspiration coming from Bessie Smith. Uh, She says, uh, the woman reporter asks her, what about Bessie Smith? Reporter says, I noticed you kind of dressed in a funny way, feathers and things like she used to dress. Uh, 
Joplin says, she was my early idol. She's the reason I started singing, really. I just, well, have you heard the news about her? I have just bought half a gravestone for her, for Bessie Smith, because she didn't even have a gravestone. How'd you like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She says, I sang just like Bessie. I copied her a lot. I sang all of her songs. She talks about her Lead Belly records and uh, all this good stuff. Once again, Janis Joplin on American Masters on PBS tonight at 8 o'clock. Let's hope they do a decent job of uh, presenting this woman to the world. This has been Jennifer Stone with Mind Over with Stone's Throat. Till next week, till, let's see, a month from now, till a month from now, go easy. Here at 94.1 KPFA, listening leads to action. Our objective is to provide the truth through diverse voices, creating meaningful change. During our spring drive, May 10th through the 27th, we'll present many voices of change like Ta-Nehisi Coates. Enslavement is not something that was done on the side. It is not a mistake. It is not a bump along the road. It is the road itself. Remember, you heard it on KPFA. Donate today at kpfa.org. Terry McMillan has been delighting us with stories just bursting with warmth, humor, and tell it like it is truth. With novels like Waiting to Exhale and How Stella Got Her Groove Back. Now she's coming to the First Congregational Church in Oakland, 2501 Harrison, to present her new book, I Almost Forgot About You. Thursday, June 23rd. Tickets are available through brownpapertickets.com 